Hello and welcome to Masterpiece Conversations, a series of podcasts that in each episode brings together a leading curator and art dealer to offer a taste of what people are really talking about right now in a particular field. I'm Thomas Marks, editor of Apollo magazine, and I'll be your host for these discussions, in which we're aiming to override the perceived church and state separation between museums and the art market, or at least to explore what conversation and collaboration between them might make possible. We'll be talking about what first drew our guests to particular fields and what's really inspiring them at this point about the art they're immersed in. And we'll dive into what the priorities are for museums and the market in that field at the moment, where they coincide and where they might even diverge productively. For this episode, the focus is on antiquities. I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Hardwick, an Egyptologist who writes about Egyptian sculpture and the history of collecting and is consulting curator of the Hall of Ancient Egypt at the Houston Museum of Natural Science, and by Madeleine Perridge, Gallery Director at Kalos Gallery in London, among the leading international specialists in artworks from the ancient world. It's great to have both of you with me. Thank you. Very happy to be here too. <laughs> nice to be here. Let's start by getting to know both of you a bit better. How, Madeleine, did you get immersed in this field? Uh, what, what sparked it all off for you? Well, I mean, I think it's always been very much an interest ever since I was a child, going to museums, you know, seeing ancient artworks, you know, being read Greek myths and legends as a kid, all that sort of thing. And yeah, I was very lucky to get the chance to study classics at school. It's particularly hard, I think, nowadays for a lot of people to do that. But I did have that opportunity and it really just stuck. I was particularly fascinated by the commercial side of it, you know, that you can own ancient artworks that it is a possibility and so that was very much the direction I wanted to go in when I went to university and and afterwards. You presumably weren't buying ancient artworks when you were fascinated by Greek myths as a child? No tragically not mostly tiny little fake Egyptian scarabs from the British Museum. (laughs) Well plastic ones merchandise. Like little ceramic ones in the gift shop yeah. And Tom, is that a similar story for you? You you inspired as a child by the ancient world? Yes, as a kid, I was interested in ancient Egypt for, I guess, since I was four or five. I went through a dinosaur phase, like many children do, then onto <laughs> Egypt, and I just stuck there. I was lucky enough to have had supportive or possibly indulgent parents and very good mentors. So as a child, I... In the 80s, I volunteered in the local museum in Bristol, which I think is something that child protection services would frown on. You know, they wouldn't have (laughs) eight-year-olds running around in the storerooms anymore, which on balance, I think (laughs) I was very fortunate to have been able to do that. I'm sure I didn't do much good, but the curator, Sue Giles, was indulgent and nurtured my interest. I went on and, and studied Egyptology at university. There are three or four or five places where you where you can do it in the UK. And I volunteered in the Ashmolean, the university museum, as an undergraduate. I always knew I would like to work as an Egyptologist and that if possible in a museum. So I my boss, Helen Whitehouse in the Ashmolean, was an extremely patient and generous mentor. And I essentially managed to stay employed in the field. I'm like you, Maddie, we should take notes on our fake scarabs <laughs> from the British Museum gift shop. <laughs> I remember having an extremely public meltdown uh, when I, my pocket money wasn't enough for one. And uh, 
yeah. I think my mother absolutely gave tragedy. <laughs> well, and you're and you're not unscrupulous classicist. You didn't just sort of pocket the scarabs. Do you think? I mean, is there is there something about people who have had interest in the ancient world? I mean, maybe maybe it's too broad a question, but it's interesting, Tom. You say you almost got left in childhood somehow, but then added the intellectual heft onto it. It's, maybe it's unlike other fields in that regard, though, because there is just something that is really inspiring about both the ancientness of the objects, the the missing pieces, the sense of these civilizations that have different structures and systems. I think for children, going to see museums and, you know, seeing these other worlds which were out there, you know, people before us, but people like us, you know, I think there's, it's a very easy sort of visual connection for children to understand. And I do think it really does stay with you. I think of so many people I meet in in this business and, you know, they're always like, oh, yeah, it's amazing. I don't think I've thought about ancient Egypt since I did that, you know, that thing at school. You know, we did a project and it was all on mummies. And funnily that you were saying about paleontology, I think it's the same thing with dinosaurs. You know, people have that that childhood sort of transport, you know, back to those days and that that sense of wonder. And I don't think it leaves you. I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you, Tom. Yeah, I mean, more generally, I think we can all agree that curators and collectors are people who prefer things to people and are more comfortable on one level <laughs> interacting with things than with with other people and I put myself in in that camp without further comment but certainly you know my own interests have changed over time I as a child you're interested well I, I at any rate was interested in in mummies and uh, I guess when I was five or six, someone came to my school who had been in Egypt. And I guess, trying to work back, he must have been in Egypt in World War II, or at any rate, before the Suez Crisis. And he had some objects. And as the kid at school who was interested in Egypt, I was allowed to touch the mummified hand. And that's something (laughs) I must have bored my parents about rigid for months afterwards, and now makes me feel slightly queasy, my attitudes to uh, <laughs> the display uh, and uh, ownership of human remains have changed a lot in 30-odd years. But also Egypt is definitely something that stays with people. And indeed, I think there are so many different approaches you can take to Egyptian culture, especially through objects. It's got something for everyone. And I think one big thing uh, I mean, leaving out things like the Bible, is that Egyptians are like us in as much as you can go to a museum and see their sandals and their the bread they ate, all this stuff so wonderfully preserved accidentally by dry desert sand. You can see that they were human beings who were, who were just like us. And then you see these animal-headed gods that just look familiar but very, very weird. <laughs> And then the whole idea of mummification, you can satisfy yourself with something that's very familiar and eternal, like uh, studying Egyptian cosmetics. Or you can then look at pharaonic culture and religion, a, a essentially a totalitarian state with a god king. That's a colleague of mine went to North Korea a few years back and said, now I truly understand pharaonic culture, so perhaps we shouldn't be idolizing the pharaohs but at any rate so Egypt has this mixture of the familiar 
and cosy and the strange, and you can project what you want on on either. Let's sort of fast forward to the the more academic side of things and and think about what's really surprised you or, or pleased you perhaps in how the field has been researched and exhibited in recent years. Maddie, what have you felt have been some of the most interesting developments looking on at the world of research? Well, I mean, not so much, I think, in research perhaps, but I think that it feels as if there has been a real resurgence in interest in the ancient world. I think, you know, it does seem to go rather in waves where you have these major blockbuster exhibitions and it reminds people that there are these amazing artworks out there. There's these fabulous ancient cultures that, you know, I do think that there is probably a a lack of study of in schools generally these days. And it does give everybody a chance to, to actually go, oh, yeah, actually, that's amazing. If you've never been to Pompeii, you know, you go to museum like the British Museum when they had their Pompeii exhibition and and then it's there it's it's available it's it's available to all sorts of people you know again with the Tutankhamun exhibition you know that that sort of came round again and I think really you know got people thinking again back into it. I get a sense that one of the things that's been very exciting in the past few years has been the relation of new technologies to how some of these works are displayed so new methods of interpretation I think about projection mapping in colour on reliefs in the Ashurbanipal exhibition at the British Museum. There are some really interesting techniques that are used currently in the Persepolis section of the Epic Iran exhibition at the V&A. And of course in Rome and, and in Italy, in archaeological sites, there's some, I think, very interesting work going on with the use of AR technology to allow us to both somehow imagine our way into the past, even while we are firmly in the present. Tom, is that something that you found quite exciting, that that sort of development? I'm an old fart, and I always (laughs) worry that with this new technology, there's a lot of stuff that's done just to see what we can do with our bright, shiny machine. So in many cases, I don't think it gets you very far. Is it a year or so back, scientists scanned... CT scanned the vocal tracts of a mummy and made it make a noise which sounded kind of digestion related. And this was something, as far as I could see, that was entirely devoid of any scientific rigour. I'm going to interrupt you, Tom, because I'm going to play devil's advocate. One of the things that I remember that, that made me very excited about the classical world was how, on my first visit to Pompeii, probably back in about 1989 or 1990, and to Rome, you used to be able to buy those books with the the acetate coverings over them where you would overlay an imagined reconstruction over a photograph of what the site looks like today. And those now have a rather sort of tweeness to them, those books. But in a sense, I still think that something like the non-invasive projection of colour onto a a monument or the sense that you can both see and not see it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not against the principle, but I think the aim always has to be, how can this make us more aware of the ancient material we have left? And uh, the mummy trachea did none of that. Tom, what are, what are for you some of the, the sort of more interesting directions of research at the moment? I saw the projection of polychromy on the Temple of Dendur in, in the Met a few years back, and that was that was very impressive. Another thing that 
interests me, particularly at the moment, is the trend, uh, and it's not particularly technically inspired, uh, towards museums looking at their own histories and uh, discussing uh, why they have what they have. And this is something that, you know, has happened in the past, but seems to be a, a field that is growing, which is curators are now encouraging uh, visitors to look at objects, not just for what they tell us about Egypt or Greece or, or China or India or Persia or wherever, but what they tell us about the Western cultures that went out and acquired them uh, and what they've done with them since. Yeah, I do think it's a really interesting point, thinking about it slightly from my side of things in that, you know, obviously collection history is, you know, a huge part of what we spend a great deal of time doing. And Tom has obviously done a lot of research on the history of collections. And I do sometimes feel that in museums, there hasn't been enough attention paid to how did this arrive here? You know, what were the circumstances? What does that mean? You know, what does that mean for the study of that field? Because there's obviously a, a strong argument to be had that research and advances are made when people are interested, where there is, you know, there is money to be made. And so I do think it's it's a really interesting aspect for me that museums are, are really getting into that and, you know, the 360 degrees of it. I wonder whether it's that so much of the focus has been on when that material has been researched, it's been on researching the legitimacy rather than actually the histories of taste, choices, opportunities that were associated with the gathering of those objects. Tom has, obviously legitimacy is, is, is fundamental to the study of the objects, but maybe there are steps beyond it as well, which tell us other things. Yeah, there was a legal regulated trade in antiquities in Egypt until 1983. And as part of that, vast quantities of objects left Egypt. Some of them before 1983, in fact, left in contravention of these laws. There's, there's a grey area in it. But the fact remains, there was a legal trade in antiquities that was fueled by demand from collectors in the West and, in fact, also in Egypt. It's an interesting sort of factoid that possibly the two most famous objects of Egyptian material culture, the bust of Nefertiti and the golden mask of Tutankhamun, were discovered by private collectors. Lord Carnarvon was excavating in the Valley of the Kings in the expectation that he would get half of his finds. And uh, while well, he, he died before before the matter was settled, it was that those were the expectations he went into uh, his work having. And then the bust of Nefertiti, the German Oriental expedition to Tel Alamana in before World War I, was privately funded by um, the main donor was James Simon. And so uh, when the division of fines took place and Nefertiti was, in accordance with Egyptian law, awarded to uh, the Germans, she belonged to James Simon for, I think, a year or so before he did the honourable thing and gave it to the, the Egyptian Museum in Germany or or did not do the more honourable thing and return it to Egypt. You can debate those, but it's just interesting to get back to the point that Egyptology as a science has been fueled until really after World War II by people going out looking for stuff and expecting to have a share of it. And now when you work in Egypt, you no longer receive a division of fines. That hasn't taken place for nearly 40 years. So people 
you know, a generation and a half of Egyptological research has been detached from that, but that still remains the engine that drove Egyptology for over 150 years. Egyptologists, I think, are finally starting to realise that this is not necessarily something to be ashamed of, but it's something that needs to be studied. And once you've got a better picture of that, then you can decide whether it's a matter for pride or shame. The structure of collecting has defined what collections we are able to visit today. Madeline, let me ask you, in this field, perhaps more than others, there's a strongly perceived division between museums and the market. But actually, in practice on the ground, do do you find that conversations with curators and with museums are part of your day-to-day work? I mean, absolutely. It is interesting how I think things have changed over time. But when I used to work for an auction house and now in my capacity at Kalos, you know, we absolutely have to work with, with museums and with curators because partly, obviously, museums are still looking to acquire pieces that, you know, perhaps have been lost, have ended up in private collections, and they do have a great place to be in museums. You know, we have to get to know curators very well, what they're interested in, what the museum you know, gaps in a museum's collection, you know, particular interests. So on that kind of commercial level, obviously, that is part of it. But the other reality is that at Carol's Gallery, we cover a huge range of cultures and artworks over, you know, a massive date range, glass, pottery, sculpture. You know, we don't pretend to be experts in the same way as Tom is an Egyptologist. You know, we are you know, what for a better word, generalists. We very much need to communicate with serious specialists and curators in those specific fields because, you know, sometimes you'll have a really very potentially interesting piece of sculpture. And if it's got hieroglyphic inscriptions on it, it may have been published. I have a very rudimentary grasp of hieroglyphs. Um, <laughs> it's absolutely essential that I can discuss these things with curators, people who will understand the absolute importance of a particular sign or how that inscription then connects it to a specific site. You know, they have so much to add. Collaboration is, in my eyes, absolutely essential and of great benefit to both sides. Tom, it strikes me you you are someone you're here in this in this podcast, but for whom collaboration with the market is actually a fundamental part of thinking about the field and and thinking about the history of the field. Yes, I think as an academic and a curator, you can't, in a subject that was formed by commercial taste for Egypt, you can't ignore its current manifestations. And that can take a number of forms. I mean, for instance, I've collaborated with law enforcement in proving that objects were definitively removed from Egypt illegally after 1983. And so I've helped stuff return to its rightful home. There was a funny case when one dealer showed me some pieces and they had museum numbers on them. He said, oh yes, they were deaccessioned from this museum. And I said, no, they they weren't. They They were removed for sampling And then the scientist who did the sampling, I think, died and they just ended up with his heirs. So the dealer, and Maddie can possibly guess who this was, (laughs) 
return them with fairly good grace to uh, the Western Museum that they'd made their way out of. And then sort of more positively for museums in the West, as Maddie and Tom, you you know, uh, Bonhams had a half an Egyptian bowl for sale two years ago uh, that I recognised joined a half an Egyptian bowl in the museum in Bolton, where I used to be keeper of Egyptology. And uh, my successor brought his half down to Bonhams. They fit together. And uh, sadly, (laughs) the owner did not want to do what I thought would be the very honourable thing and give it to Bolton. But it didn't sell at auction. And Bonhams very kindly brokered a sale at a mutually advantageous price, waived the commission and even gave some money towards it. So that was a case where research established an object. You know, one was legally on the market, two, where it had come from, three, where it joins, what it joined, and then brought it back together for the first time in nearly 100 years. So that was a it's a very, it's not actually a particularly beautiful dish, but it's uh, it's something I was very happy to do. But it's also just as a reminder in you saying that it's not a beautiful dish, but some of the objects that we're talking about are aesthetically very appealing to collectors today, and some of them might seem quite ordinary, but there is seemingly ordinary material that that is part of our knowledge of the ancient world. That's vital to remember. In fact, it was made of glazed steatite with this lovely peacock feather, blue-green, shiny glaze. Yeah, maybe it's not such a bad piece. But And in the 19th <laughs> century, this was how tastemakers like the pre-Raphaelite artist Henry Wallace, that's how they got people interested in Egyptian objects by saying, you know, you, you've bought your Chinese blue and white and your Italian maiolica and your your Islamic lusterware, now you should be buying Egypt because this is all part of the same great family of ceramic arts and this will round out your collection and it's a lot cheaper than this other stuff which is now going up in value and I can help you get in on the market now. So the history of taste is inextricably bound up with the history of people wanting to pay money for things and even before that, the history of people thinking they can make people pay money for things. It's less the the academics than the dealers in the 19th century and even today who are making taste, not just for antiquities, but for all works of art. Maddie, what, I mean, there are obviously various legal priorities for museums in terms of what they can and can't buy in fields of antiquities, but more generally, what are you finding museums are most interested in acquiring at the moment or looking out for? Well, I mean, I do think it is a difficult time for, for many museums because, you know, this is obviously a very sort of polarising issue. But there are many museums with collections at all sorts of different levels. I think that's one of the things I enjoy the most is that, you know, I think people have an idea that a museum is only looking for the, the serious marquee object massive lumps of sculpture and things like that. But the reality is actually quite different. And a lot of the time pieces that museums generally want to acquire are can often seem quite, you know, just mediocre, you know, sort of everyday items, something that's very representative of daily life, perhaps, or, you know, something that there might be quite a lot of, but this is a particularly unusual type. 
I think I find the sort of the breadth so heartening. <laughs> and I think antiquities is a particular sort of field that quite like that, that, you know, there are collectors and museums looking for everything from a tiny little pop shirt with, you know, perhaps a tiny little stamp for a particular maker, everything from the tiniest, nerdiest, most sort of like deeply unexciting object to most people up to the serious expensive pieces. It's an area where people can collect, where museums who haven't got a lot of money but are building small, really interesting collections um, can continue to broaden those collections. Obviously, provenance collection history is absolutely essential, but that's the challenge. A lot of the time, provenance has got separated, collection history is lost, and you know sometimes museums can be fantastic at finding out that information. It's very exciting sometimes. It's interesting that you, you mentioned this is a polarised field. You mentioned that there are different attitudes to how one might work together between trade and, and curator or, or a museum to try and re-establish provenance that might have been lost or work out where an orphaned object has come from. Do you feel, both of you, but Tom, let me ask you first, that some of these quite polemical arguments between different parties in this field could turn into something that's more like a progressive conversation? You would hope so. It's very difficult. As we've been discussing, there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of objects. If you tot up numbers of objects in 19th and 20th century auction catalogues, there are umpteen Egyptian, classical, Mesopotamian, whatever pieces that left that were legally on the market that have not all gone into museums and that have lost their documentation. So what does one do with orphan objects like these? When you add to that the fact that unscrupulous vendors of looted antiquities are now forging provenance documentation, this is was particularly the case with a number of high-profile Egyptian objects. When you put the fact that there are objects that have been out of their country of origin for a very long time but lack full documentation, and then add to that that recently looted objects are now being given fake documentation. It's a difficult mix. You can see I am sitting on the fence about this very carefully. You could boil it down to whether you are someone who thinks that it is worth sacrificing objects to make an absolute moral point, or that it is worth engaging with objects with no documentation in order to try to keep them visible and keep them studied. That seems to be how the argument is is boiling down. Whether it will go one way or another, I think we just have to wait and see. Maddie, off the back of what Thomas said, let me ask you whether you feel that there are ways that you would like to see museums and the art trade collaborating more effectively in the antiquities field. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it is a very complex issue. And, you know, I think it's pretty important to bear in mind, actually, the great advances I think the trade generally have made in collection history and understanding that that the old fashioned sort of not passing on information and privacy and, you know, protecting your client and, and all that kind of thing that, yes, of course, fine, but 
you know, it is also essential to give as much information because as Tom was talking about earlier, you know, so many of these old auction catalogues and pieces that were sold through the Cairo Museum, through their shop, most of the time it's pretty impossible to put that back together unless you are a museum or a specialist who has got access to that sort of information and that specialist knowledge. Well, on that idea of collaboration and trying to encourage dialogue, I'm going to draw it to a close and I'm going to imagine, I hope, the Toms and Madelines of the future in the British Museum gift shop as we speak, (laughs) buying their scarabs with their pocket money and think of the future of, of this field as well. So thank you both to Madeline Perridge and Tom Hardwick for joining me. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Masterpiece Conversations, a podcast brought to you by Masterpiece London. The fair returns to the Royal Hospital Chelsea in the summer of 2022. For more information and to enjoy further content brought to you by the fair and its exhibitors, head to www.masterpiecefair.com. 